Welcome to this episode of SDI Encounters, a podcast from SDI, the home of spiritual companionship. I'm Matt Whitney. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org. Who is a spiritual companion? A spiritual director is a spiritual companion. So is a life coach. So is a chaplain, a hospice nurse, really anybody in a caring vocation. But it can also be a type of person who lives and listens in ways that embody this type of caring. That is, a spiritual companion need not do it as a job. Some of us are spiritual companions in the way we honor our relationships to family, friends, colleagues, neighbors, the land, our ancestors, and the cosmos. So there are lots of ways that the role of spiritual companionship So there are lots of ways the role of spiritual companionship manifests, and SDI celebrates the diversity of practices and people who identify as one. But how does one identify or see themselves and others as a spiritual companion? In April 2020's Listen publication, Executive Director Rev. Seifu Anil Singh-Malaris wrote a reflection called The Dimensions of Spiritual Companionship, These are a series of characteristics and skills that a companion lives into and practices in their life. What are the characteristics of a spiritual companion? Reverend Seifu's various dimensions invite us to consider this. And I think it's important to note that one need not embody all of these dimensions. But I think each one should give us some pause, at least, in which one might consider, how do I practice this dimension? How do I embody it? How do I live it out? In an ongoing series of episodes, Reverend Seifu and I will have conversations around each of these dimensions as a way to unpack and get to know each of them in depth. And as you listen, I invite you to consider each for yourself. The way that you understand each dimension need not reflect how we understand it. But I hope that these conversations spark either a knowing within you or a good curiosity. Dimensions of spiritual companionship. So Reverend Seifu, we're going to talk today about good discernment or sound judgment. This is what you wrote in your listen article back in April. We are intuitives and quiet guides. We provide reasoned feedback only when asked. And we also try to evince balance and equanimity at all times. So how does this apply to the spiritual companionship relationship? bringing good discernment in. Obviously, it's a listening practice. I suppose it has to do with how we respond to what is being shared. Yeah, so the first thing I would say is deep listening is a perfect example of a discerning posture, right? We listen, we witness, we invite, we sustain with our silence, with our listening, actually, with our quiet listening more than silence. And being good listeners is the key to any successful relationship, whether it's spiritual companionship or a marriage or partnership or speaking between friends, 
dialoguing with opponents, that posture of being able to listen and take in what is being said quietly and respectfully is the key to good communication. And so it's a very core skill kind of across the board. And it's especially core scale in the spiritual companion relationship, spiritual direction relationship. So in and of itself, it's a form of sound judgment because it basically says, I'm here to listen. I'm here to witness. I'm here to support. And deep listening can be hard to do, even for spiritual directors and spiritual companions, because our tendency is, as we've discussed before, you and I have discussed before, is to rush in and problem solve, right? So, well, let me help you. Let me help you. I have the solution for you. I have the remedy for whatever is ailing you. And the truth is, that's almost never true. I mean, sometimes that's true, but that's certainly in the context of someone kind of feeling their way to the infinite, feeling their way to God. That's almost certainly never true. Right. They have to come up with their own sense of what it's like to come into communion with the universe. And so deep listening is one of the more core disciplines we can apply and is a reflection of good judgment. It's basically, uh, to put it colloquially, is the ability to shut up and listen is really important. And it's especially important in a spiritual companion relationship. I want to get into that. I want to first approach it from just a comfort standpoint, maybe for a person seeking spiritual guidance or direction or companionship. It's just not common, I think, for most of us to be in relationships where someone is really practicing this deep listening and shutting up. And so if I'm talking to you and I'm sharing something about myself and you know, you're just silently listening. Sometimes the perception can be like, does this person care? Like, why is this person being quiet? How might a spiritual companion communicate that silence is appropriate, that the deep listening is occurring without, you know, what might be, it can be a growing edge for people. I guess I would put it that way. Well, I mean, I think we announced that that's our modality, right? So it doesn't catch people by surprise. They don't think we're ignoring them or actually achieve the opposite effect of what we're intending, which is to feel like they're being ignored or not assented to in some way. We announce it. We say, look, you know, I'm here to listen to you. I'm here to help you and support you in your own explorations of the divine or the universe or however you might ultimately refer to that essential being or that essence of the universe, if you will. But of course, I'm here to dialogue with you as well, if you want me to. I think the key is that we're not initiating, right? We're not rushing it. We, the spiritual companions, spiritual directors, are not rushing in to cover up uncomfortable empty spaces, that we're allowing the person, the directee or the companion to explore whatever the term is, kind of fill in the blanks for themselves initially. And then, of course, they might say, well, what do you think? Or what's your perspective on this? And as long as they are initiating, I think that's okay. And that's a little different than, oh, 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 wait, wait, you know, I've got it, I've got it, I've figured it out, you know, let me help you, right? And that's well-intentioned, but in many instances, it disempowers the person that we are companioning and actually detracts from their own ability to climb up that mountain solo, 
you know, to use that analogy that we always use, ultimately we can't climb a mountain for somebody else. We can help them and say, you know, if you're climbing up a mountain, don't lean back because you're going to fall. <laughs> you have to lean forward, right? I mean, like really basic stuff. We can help that way, but we can't climb the mountain for them. Mm-hmm. So that's also true in an exploration of the deepest spiritualities yeah. in our lives. And this gets to, I think, what you were talking about in regards to evincing balance and equanimity, that you are not climbing the mountain for the person you are companioning. But if the person says, please help me climb the mountain, how might you respond in that regard? I might say something like, I've noticed that you're leaning back as you're climbing up the mountain. You might want to try leaning forward. And that's both literal and metaphorical, right? Which means you're trying to climb a mountain up to God, but you're leaning away from God rather than leaning into God. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of very basic common sense feedback that I could provide. If they ask questions like, well, I'm really interested on me being a Buddhist, or I'm really interested in what would Buddhists say about how to do this? Or, you know, based on your knowledge, spiritual director or spiritual director or spiritual companion, what would you say that various religions say about how to lean into God, how to lean into the universe? And then that might trigger me to say things like, well, some kind of contemplative engagement on your part would probably work. I can't tell you exactly what that's going to look like for you, but I can give you a few models that work in a number of traditions. I can share the one that works for me, always with the caveat that just because it works for me doesn't mean it's going to work for you. But certainly as an invitation for them to think about what kind of contemplative engagement do I want to practice in my spiritual explorations? Is it dancing, riding a bike? That's for them to sort out. So we can give them examples if they're asking. That also ties into some of the other elements, like basically respecting their agency. It's kind of like teaching one of our children how to ride a bike, right? We hold the bike for them and we teach them to learn how to balance, how to find basically their balance while they're on the bike and how to hold on to the front wheel and how to turn it. But the whole point of the exercise is we're going to let go, right? And they're going to ride the bike themselves. And of course, they're going to fall. That's going to happen. I have never met any person who's learned to ride a bike without falling, (laughs) right? That's a necessary prerequisite. That's another analogy I would use. It's like I'm helping someone how to learn how to ride a bike. I can't ride the bike for you, but I can show you the mechanics of it. And I can show you the elements that are important in riding the bike. Because there's a presumption there that you have experienced that for yourself. That you have tried to ride the bike and you have fallen many times and you know what it's like. And so part of this intuition, I suppose, or being intuitive is knowing when to share of those experiences or when to just allow somebody to share what their experience of riding the bike is like. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think it's also establishing the engagement parameters, right? So in my own spiritual companion practice, I have different types of engagements with different people. So some are saying, I want to have a dialogue with you because I've already accepted that you have a Buddhist perspective and I want to hear about it. I've already accepted that you studied multiple religions and I want to hear your perspective from multiple religions, even knowing that it's your take on this. I welcome that kind of engagement. So as long as those parameters have been set up front 
And the invitation has been extended upfront in the relationship that a certain type of dialogue is permissible and desired by the person that we're companioning, then I think it's fine. I think it's yeah. fair game. And now I'm thinking about it in regards to the person receiving companionship. Like if I go to find a spiritual director, like part of my discernment process is what do I need from this spiritual companion? Do I need somebody to be in dialogue with me and giving me advice and suggestions, or do I just need them to hold up the mirror of silent listening and just let me uncoil? And a conclusion that you might come up with is there are some sessions where you want to unburden yourself mm-hmm. and you just want to be heard and witnessed. And there are other sessions as you go down the road where you go, I tried this and it didn't work for me. I know you've tried this yourself. And why do you think it's not working for me? That is veering into problem solving, but it's also kind of inviting feedback. I can only seem to turn my bike to the right. And every time I try to turn the bike to the left, I fall. Why would that be? And I said, well, when I watch you watching your bike, I notice you tend to favor your right side because you're right-handed. And so it's easy for you to make a right turn. And since you don't favor your left side, it's hard for you to make a left turn or whatever. That's just an example. Because very often spiritual directees, spiritual explorers come to us not knowing what they're looking for. They know, like, I want something deeper in my life. I want a deeper meaning in my life. And I have no idea what it looks like. And so then you're starting from another place, like, well, talk to me about any religious background you might have. Well, I don't have a religious background. Well, talk to me about any spiritual experiences that you've had. And then that person might volunteer. Well, I climbed the mountain when I was six and I experienced something wonderful at the top or whatever it was. And so then you kind of build from there and say, ah, is that the kind of experience you're looking for? to be there. And then of course you can start to unfurl, is that what your notion of God is? Or is that what your notion of the beyond or the infinite or the universe is? You know, it really varies from person to person pretty dramatically. And it depends on which stage they're at or if they've had any previous experience or trauma associated with the particular religious tradition, which unfortunately is very common. And so then they're like, don't talk to me about established religions of any kind. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it because I have a lot of trauma, even if, if they haven't identified that that's what they have. They have a, an aversion, a deep aversion to institutionalized religion because it's burned them and traumatized them. But they're still spiritual beings looking for a way through. So it really varies from person to person pretty dramatically. And I think that's, you know, how to deal with that as a spiritual director, spiritual companion is our own best discernment of, based on our experience of what that person is asking for, where they are at and what they're asking for. And I mentioned common sense and simple, clear responses are usually the best ones. There's no need to overcomplicate this. It can be deep and profound and direct and easy to understand, not over-calculated or over-engineered responses just clear it to the point. And that's a good example of good discernment. And you learn that based on judgment. It's like, there's no need to go back to our bike, you know, say, well, you have to be perfectly aligned. Your weight has to be perfectly distributed from one side to the other to ride the bike successfully. And let me invoke Newton's laws of gravity 
and the orientation of your body and none of that really matters, right? It's like, find your balance and ride the bike. We don't need to over-engineer the response either because then that becomes distracting and it takes that person away from what they're trying to do. SDI is a member-supported global contemplative movement that contributes to peace, justice, and living in right relationship with all beings. Your membership supports this podcast, publications, educational programming, and outreach. Together, we are changing the world through the contemplative action of spiritual companionship. Everyone is welcome to be a member of SDI. Membership benefits include subscriptions to our presence, listen, and connections publications, discounts on educational events and gatherings, and now offering online group spiritual companionship sessions. Become a new member or renew your membership today on our website, sdicompanions.org. So I understand discernment as being able to evaluate several options or criteria and being able to make a choice or go down a path that is the best one in that moment. And so... How do you develop that skill set? I mean, I know the answer to this because you are a Zen practitioner. The answer to develop good discernment is to sit. Just to take it out of the Zen context, and I'll bring it back. In order to have good judgment, you have to be a clean vessel. If you drink too much, party too much, if you have various addictions, not just to drugs, but to psychological conditions, you're not going to be able to exhibit good judgment because you are wrestling with your own internal demons. So you have to be as clean a vessel as you possibly can be. For me in Zen, the tool that I use is meditation to get there, but there's lots of tools to get there. And so other people have other approaches to be clean and centered and grounded. And to be clean and centered and grounded also means to have some insight into ourselves, into who we are, into our own demons and our own traumas and have an ability to process those and grow from them. So then the model that we present to the person in front of us is stable. It's a stable, grounded center, right? It's one that says, when people die, whom we love, we stay centered as much as we can. We're human and we're going to cry and we're going to grieve, but we're going to stay centered. When we're fired, we stay centered. We haven't lost our lives. We haven't lost our ability to move forward. Perhaps there's some great lessons to learn from being fired and we stay grounded. So we try to model groundedness and sound judgment is basically being a clean vessel and operating from that core in our responses and our modeling. And our modeling to ourselves as well as to others, because we're works in progress. There's no perfection here, right? Every day is a new day. It's a new chance to completely screw up and a new chance to completely learn from that completely new screw up. And irrespective of how much experience we have in our backgrounds and how much groundedness, we can all slip and fall. We can all make mistakes. We can all lose our tempers. But also recovering from that is an example of groundedness. And all of those things are things that we bring to the spiritual 
a companionship relationship. It's modeling the kind of groundedness that allows us clean access to infinity. You mentioned that even though you practice good discernment, even if you've been around for a while and seen and experienced some things that you can still make the wrong choice, you can still fall on your face. Yes. So we're human and let's use anger, right? So anger is a disguise for fear. We get angry when we feel slighted. We get angry when we feel ignored. We get angry when we fear something is about to betray our sense of who we are and our sense of what is due us. And so anger can be triggered by any number of things because even as much processing as we've done, you're tired someday, you haven't slept well, you're overwhelmed and somebody comes to you with good hearted intention and you lose your temper with them, right? You just basically say, I don't have time for this today. I don't have time for you today. Yeah, you just described my day. Yeah. So, so when that happens, we have experience. When we were younger, the next day you might say, oh, I wish I hadn't gotten angry at my son or my wife or whomever. But with the benefit of experience, you kind of catch yourself immediately and you say, oh, shoot, I'm sorry. I didn't mean for that to come out that way. I'm tired. I'm cranky. I'm overrun. This is not the best time for me to converse with you. So please come back later or whatever. The response is we correct quickly. We still get angry, but we have learned to self-correct very quickly also. Mm -hmm. And then it's an invitation for us to go, you know, that anger I thought and fear that I thought I had processed, I just discovered a new trigger for it. (laughs) So I need to go back and do some more processing around it. Why did I get so angry? Because I, I felt like that person wasn't respecting my boundaries. And where did that come from? I don't know. It came from people not respecting my boundaries when I was growing up or whatever the cause might be. But we're self-corrective. And that's why I say the modeling of apologies is one of the best examples we can set because we're never going to get everything right. In fact, it's almost entirely predictable that we're going to screw up on a regular basis, irrespective. And so that's when we have to catch ourselves quickly and say, oh, I'm sorry. That had nothing to do with you. You triggered something in me that had nothing to do with you. So for somebody who's on spiritual path and maybe feeling lost in the wilderness and they're wondering, where do I go next? What's the next path for me? How do I get out of this wilderness? Maybe one of the options is just remain in the wilderness, you might say, and just be lost for a while. But speaking personally, I am somebody who can evaluate many options and many criteria for a single solution and get bogged down in the details. You were describing that earlier. We can really you know, just sort of get in the weeds with making a decision on something. And you said also that usually there is an intuitive answer there that is obvious and apparent and very simple, a simple solution. How does one cultivate that? Practice, 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 practice. I may have mentioned this, but the insight of Taoism that I keep going back, you know, and I first read the Tao Te Ching when I was 17, and that book was a tremendous revelation to me. The Tao that can be named is not the true Tao. Basically, the, the whole philosophy of Wu Wei, which is that the more we grasp for something, the more it escapes us. And I understood that not just conceptually, I understood it 
at a very deep intuitive level when I first read it at age 17. That doesn't mean that I haven't had to relearn that lesson 10,000 times since then, including, you know, yesterday. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're doing it again. You're grasping for something that you, there's no grasping. What are you grasping for? Yeah. And then you go, oh, yes, that's right. That old Taoist lesson again and again and again and again. But the more we practice it, the more it becomes second nature, the more it becomes ingrained in us. So that's what I've discovered. And it really doesn't take root. As I was mentioning earlier, if we are distracted through addictions or dysfunctions or unresolved traumas, it can't take root beyond a certain point because there's no fertile soil for it. We have to process and combust. So there's that fertilizer in which it can implant, right? So, you know, one of our friends is a chaplain for people who are approaching death, right? And he's done it 10 times and 100 times. And after a while, he acquires a certain grace around it, but also a certain poise and discernment around it because he's been through it so many times, right? So it's not, oh my God, this is a big surprise, people die. No, it's like, People die. They die every day. I'm going to die. It's okay. It doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult when it comes to us or it comes to someone that we love dearly because that's very painful. But we have that deeper sense embedded. So I'd say practice, practice, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. And after doing that with a clean mind, the flower is deeply embedded within us. What it sounds like you're describing is just being able to almost step out of our own discernment process and be like, you're discerning again. <laughs> yeah. What do I do? Am I, I got all these choices. What decision do I need to make? And it's not about like being able to evaluate the criteria well. It's being able to sort of step outside of that and say, like, you're in the weeds. Like, all will be well. It's okay. Yeah. There is that element of stepping out of our heads. But I would also say there's this training that I'm talking about is yeah. also training an in intuitive discernment in a different kind of discernment that we don't even have to think about it. Somebody cries, you reach out and you give them a hug. Somebody looks like they're about to fall down the stairs and you can see it. You don't even think about it. You rush out and stop their fall. You grab their hand and stop their fall. And there's not that two-step. There's not, oh, let me think about this and then act on it. The acting just comes out naturally because you've practiced that modality of being helpful and kind and compassionate, and it's embedded itself so deeply in you that you don't even have to work it anymore. It just comes out. And so that's intuitive discernment. I think that's different than what you were mentioning, which is very valid, which is, I just refer to it as the two-step discernment. And, you know, it's like, let me think and then act. Oh, I'm overthinking. Let me stop thinking before I can act. Rather than Somebody's in distress, I'm helping. I'm not even thinking about it. I'm helping because I've trained myself to do that. I'm not saying me personally, I'm not there yet, but I keep working on it. And I think certainly the models that I've seen in my own life of spiritual companions are people who practice this deeply until it becomes second nature. You know, Aristotle talked about the moral virtues. You're not born with them. You practice them until they become second nature. So something very similar. So good discernment is not just intellectual discernment. It's also an intuitive affinity to meet circumstances exactly as they are 
in exactly the most appropriate way. Yeah, like you've learned to balance on the bike. Yeah. The muscles just yep. not thinking about balancing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the other thing I would say about this is modeling is setting a good example and say, how do you not let things get to you? I would like to be like that. I would like to be a person who doesn't get angry. Sure. Who's always understanding and kind. And I have a long ways to go, but I know what the model looks like. And I know that a lot of the reactivity that prevents me from being that kind of person is tied to childhood trauma and to this false, in my worldview, the Buddhist worldview, to the illusion of the ego, of the centrality of the ego, right? Once that centrality has been displaced, once we recognize or I recognize that the ego is not central in anything, actually, that it's easier to operate within a concept that says, okay, I'm going to pick up this person or I'm going to stop them from falling. I'm just going to do it, pick them up, prop them up and walk away, right? I don't need to stand there while they shower me with gratitude for having saved our lives. It's like, that's not what's moving me. I'm just doing the most appropriate thing out of a cultivated innate sense of correct behavior, correct ethical behavior and correct intuitive behavior. That kind of modeling is so powerful because when people see it, when I see it, others practicing, I go, wow, it is possible to be that balanced. It is possible to be that loving without any expectation of reward. It is possible to embody the message of the Buddha and of Christ and of so many spiritual leaders over the ages who are just, let me give you my heart and I keep walking. And, you know, if I give you my heart and you kill me in return, that's on you. It's not on me. I was congruent with what my sense of being one with the universe or being one with God demanded of me, which I have practiced. So yeah. I think setting a good example is also a wonderful form of modeling discernment. Mm-hmm. Two things come up for me hearing that. One is the term congruence which I think is really important. And it's something everybody wrestles with and it has to do with this discernment process. It's just how am I living out my values to the best of my ability? And the other thing too is, I think the sense that, you know, the intuitive right thing to do is always apparent or is always the right thing to do. And I think this is me just going down sort of a rabbit hole of looking around at the world and seeing that not everybody does the right thing and still can achieve a lot of success by choosing the wrong things to do and weighing right and wrong in regards to ethics, values. Yeah, you know, I think that if we define being a winner as having a lot of money in our bank account, there are a lot of winners out there and there's a lot of losers. But if you're looking at deep, profound, intimate union with everything that was, is, and will be, the money your bank account accounts for, I don't want to say accounts for nothing, because you can certainly use it to help people. But what is our measure of success, right? I think that's what underlies the question that you're asking, which is success according to whom and according to what set of values. Success by your and my values is centered around love and kindness, because that is the ultimate essence of our ethical systems. In your case, you know, 
through your particular upbringing and your particular spiritual expressions of it, even as they're evolving, in my case, through mine. But I'm convinced they lead to the same conclusion, which is to be a kind-hearted, compassionate person, willing and able to meet the suffering and the distress of people in the world head on and to do our best to counter it. That's success in our world. That's success as a spiritual companion, not stealing millions and millions of dollars from people and having a mansion and laughing all the way to your grave by drinking the most expensive booze and, you know, whatever. That is a measure of success, but that's not the measure of success that we're using in a spiritual companion context, I don't think. Yeah, I think we can all plant a flag on universal intimate union with all that was, is, and is to come. It yeah. sounds good. Yep, sounds good to me. Don't we all want to receive that message of the good news? It's going to be all right. Even when we die, it's going to be all right. Even when we suffer, it's going to be all right. Not it's going to be. It is all right. It is all right. Mm. And how hard that is to do when you're suffering tremendously or you see tremendous suffering. Yeah. But that's really what we're called to do on a much, much deeper level is to say, there's an essence out there. We're part of this essence right now. We will be part of this essence when our bodies are and our minds and our personalities are gone. We'll still be there. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. It is all right. Like we've already arrived. We have already arrived. We just forget, right? That's why we had that other podcast where we say we just need to remember who we are and who we are is so much more than this. Who we are is eternal. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that our conversation has stirred something in you. I invite you to take a moment to reflect. How do you identify with this dimension of spiritual companionship? Does it feel natural? Does it feel elusive? How does this dimension manifest in you? Is it something you desire to increase for yourself? I invite you to take a few breaths and tend to that stirring. If you're enjoying this podcast and you want to help us share and spread the word about the life-giving practice of spiritual companionship, you can help us out by subscribing to this podcast through your favorite app. You could give us a like or even write us a review. Thank you for listening. This is Matt Whitney with Spiritual Directors International. Thanks again for listening. Your time and your presence here are deeply appreciated. If you liked this show and would like us to continue making them, please do subscribe now while it's fresh on your mind. Also, we would love to hear from you, so please feel free to send in your comments and suggestions to the email address podcast at sdiworld.org.
SDI is the home of spiritual companionship. Learn more about us and our work on our website, sdicompanions.org.